Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But here on The Profile, we always like to delve into a person's life, faith and ministry, hear a bit more about what makes them tick. And it's a bit of a bittersweet episode today because uh, after many years, my guest today, Rob Parsons, is bringing his Premier Christianity column to an end. So it's bitter in that sense. It's also sweet, though, because for the next hour, I get to delve into Rob's fascinating life, his testimony, his ministry. Rob Parsons is, of course, an international speaker, a best-selling author. He's the founder and chairman of Care for the Family, a national charity which aims to strengthen family life and help those hurting because of family difficulties. Rob, welcome to the Program. Oh, thanks, Sam. Lovely to be with you. So how many years has it been you writing this oh, column now? I don't now? know. And, you know, <laughs> uh, I've loved every second. I've uh-huh. loved every second of it. But it must, it's, it must be, I think it's 20 years plus, probably. It's as long as I've been reading the magazine. Is it? Yeah. And I've been reading the magazine since I was about 16 years old. So there we go. So it's a decent chunk of time. Yeah. And incredibly popular. Whenever we survey our audience, uh, people always say they really enjoy reading your thoughts. Where do your ideas for the column come from? Oh, do you know, I wish I could say they came directly from heaven, but (laughs) 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 somebody once said of one author, he didn't have an unpublished thought in his head. And sometimes I think (laughs) I feel a bit like that. Oh, I don't know. Somebody said to me some years ago, Rob, I think you're a bit of a watcher. I, I kind of watch. I watch people and stories. And, and I think when you find a fascinating story or illustration, there'll be something of God in it. And, um, I was brought up, my parents didn't go to church, but I was brought up in a little brethren assembly, and I was told a cardinal mode of preaching is the illustration must always be subservient to the text, and and I don't think I believe that now. I, I believe that when you find a fantastic story, you sometimes begin with a story, and there'll be something of God in it, and I think Jesus taught like that. So I keep my eyes open for things, Sam. So tell me more about life growing up. I understand that there was no hot water and no plumbing yeah, in the house yeah, where you yeah, grew yeah. up. Yeah. Do you know, at the time, it, it seemed pretty normal because everyone in the street was the same. Mum was a, uh, an office cleaner. Dad was a postman. Although she didn't work for until I was about uh, 12. She was home there. We rented our home. We had no inside toilet, no running hot water, no, no inside bathroom, no toilet paper. Even now, I can't look at a copy of the Southwest Echo without a million memories coming, uh, flooding back. But the incredible thing is, I didn't feel poor. Right. All the kids in the street were like that. We yeah. had enough to eat. We, you know, life was okay. Yeah. But uh, looking back, it seems a little different. Sure. So what was it that made your parents send you to Sunday school, given that they didn't have a faith of, them, of their own? Well, you know, I think they actually did have right. a faith of their own. Something had happened a long time ago in their lives. I mean, a pretty traditional faith, uh, uh, um, but they certainly didn't go to church. But one day, Miss Williams from the little gospel hall on the corner of our street knocked our door and said, would any boys or girls in this house like to come to Sunday school? And my mother said, he'd like to go. <laughs> and Miss Williams took my hand and led me down the street and into the world of Sunday school. And she was an incredible person. Um, I often say now, you don't have to be young to be a great youth leader. Um, And she never did get married, she never did have kids of her own, but I think she had hundreds of children. And that little 
Brethren Assembly. You know, it's Sam, it's kind of in to knock our roots, to make fun of them. They're, mm. they're kind of sometimes their legalism and their silly rules and regulations. But in truth, they loved me. They cared for me. And, uh, and that experience of being that little Brethren Church changed my life. Wow. Can you pinpoint a particular moment for you where you feel like you became a Christian or faith became real? You know, was it during those early years of Sunday school? Or was it later on? I think there were two things. I think um, uh, when I was 12, uh, they used to take us kids, uh, boys, to a, a summer camp on the Goa. And uh, I can remember kneeling in a muddy tent and, and giving my life uh, to Christ. Uh, uh, I, I remember that well. And then I kind of fell away and I was about to drop out of church and about to drop out of school. I didn't really understand school. Uh, we only had a couple of books in our home. We weren't academic. But an older man from our church called Arthur Tovey came up to me and said, Rob, we're having a little Bible study next Wednesday in my home. Would you like to come? All I wanted to do was be a rock and roll singer. <laughs> and so it wasn't the greatest offer you'd ever had. But I said yes. Uh, and Arthur and his wife were poor. They lived in two rooms in his mother's house. He'd never passed an academic exam. He had no understanding of theology, but he loved kids. And, and they made us feel special. He taught us the Bible for 25 minutes. And then in this tiny room, because he, he knew we'd get bored, he erected a table tennis table with two bits of hardboard. And we played ping pong with the bats up against our chest. If the ball went underneath the table... It was an engineering job to get it out. <laughs> and then with what little money he had, he did buy us fish and chips. And that's where coming back from the chip shop and the vinegar was seeping through the paper. Margaret had the tea brewing. And they made you feel like a king. Whatever teacher said about you, and one teacher had recently written in my report, something I put in a recent Christianity article, he's making no use of what little ability he has. Uh, Arthur told you you were special, hmm. that God had given you gifts. And, and if you missed that class, he'd come hunting you down. And I think those people changed my life. Wow. And, and when I was about 17, he said, Rob, I think God has given you a gift of public speaking. And I'm going to teach you. That was scary, Sam. He was the worst public speaker <laughs> <laughs> you've ever heard in your life. Uh, and he got out something only your older readers would know, an old flannel graph. It was a bit of cloth. And you stuck characters on it. And he taught me to teach the parable of the prodigal son to wow. kids. It's amazing because in one sense that is so simple isn't it the, the story you tell of, of that upbringing of other Christians who simply loved you it's mm. it sounds like a very uncomplicated way of doing quote unquote children's ministry but there's a wonderful simplicity that clearly there had is. a very profound effect there on is. your life do you know and I do find this um, quite a dilemma to be honest because at the moment, care of the family, we've got this incredible initiative, the Kitchen Table Project, about passing faith on, uh, particularly to under 10s. Those are crucial years. Um, I, I myself have taken the whole bringing home the prodigal's message and getting your kids to church that they may end up hating God around the world. And, and, and I'm a big believer in youth programs. I think parents tend to give youth leaders a hard time because they want them to do in one night a week what they've not managed in 16 years. So I'm all for incredible youth programs. Nevertheless, sometimes you come across a little church that's got it all wrong. They've got no youth programs, probably. They don't, they're filled with older people. But the young people there feel loved. They feel part of a family. They, everything's wrong with it in terms of youth work, but they are loved. And, and I, I, I find that an interesting uh, phenomenon. Coming back to um, your story, tell us a bit about what happened after you grew up, go through school. What came next in terms of work for you? 
Well, I really wasn't any good at school. I, um, uh, I don't think I was lazy. I honestly don't think I understood it. I did pass to go to the grammar school, but I didn't, I didn't, do, I didn't do well. Um, uh, but, but over a period of time, my, my mother helped me a bit. She, she, she took some extra work on, and that paid for some tutors to eventually get me through French <laughs> level in the old GCSE and a couple of others. And I managed to amass enough GCSEs um, to, to get into teacher training college. Right. And, um, and I, loved, I loved that experience. And the only thing I could ever do in school, Sam, was, um, was um, English. Eng- I could write. I, um, and so whereas I failed almost everything else, I did pretty well in, in, in English. And when I got to college to, to study to be a teacher, I did English as my main. And one day I'm in the class and the, uh, the senior lecturer said, I, I wish you could all write poetry and understand it like Robert Parsons. And it was as if a voice was coming from another world. I'd honestly never heard anything approaching academic praise. And suddenly, I was here focusing on the one thing in life I could do. Mm. And, um, and that changed everything. And, and I began to believe, you know, I can do this thing. I'm not dull. I'm not, you know. And, and I did pretty well. And, and um, I was about to go for my first teaching job um, to teach English. So I was about uh, 20 years old. And I'm coming out of church one night, that little gospel hall, and a lawyer came up to me. And he said, um, Rob, I've, I've been listening to you speak. I think you'd be a really good lawyer. I'd like you to become a, a lawyer. I want you to work for me in my legal, legal practice. Well, honestly, Sam, it was like saying I'd like you to walk on the moon. <laughs> I went home and I told my dad. Dad was just getting ready to go out on a, on a shift as a postman. And I said, Dad, I've met this guy. He's going to pay for me to go through law college. He said I could become a lawyer. I'll never forget what he said to me that day. He didn't try to hurt me. He wasn't being sarcastic. Sam, I think he was trying to keep me from the pain of failure. He said, son, people like us don't become lawyers. Mm. And um, I, I remember thinking, gosh, even people who love you can pour cold water on your dreams. And I went back to this guy and I said, look, let me teach for a year first. Uh, get my probation me over and, if, and possibly then. And he said, okay, fine. So I taught in St. Julian's High School, Newport. I taught English. Uh, to teenagers for a year, and I loved it. I and they offered me promotion, but I thought, you know, I got this chance to do this other thing, and I, I gave it a shot. Mm. And funnily enough, I passed all the exams wow. first time. I yeah. I was sat there next in one class to a guy who'd got a first from Oxford, and and he couldn't pass them, and and I passed them. And I ended up teaching postgrad law for goodness sake, wow. and and. Um, uh, I don't really understand any of that, but I do know that Arthur Tovey, uh, teaching me to, to, to tell the parable of the prodigal son to kids, and I think that's the thing about dream catchers, and he was a dream catcher. They can achieve in others what they could never achieve themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, since then, I've, I've spoken all over the world to blue chip companies and governments, and 
thousands of lawyers. I, fo- I formed shortly after that with my partner, one of the biggest legal consultancy in Britain. We, we were taking the London Hilton Hotel and we had hundreds of lawyers come into our, our seminars on how to grow legal practice. And, 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 and I was speaking in South Africa in Cape Town like about five years ago to the Million Dollar Round Table. That's, people are very wealthy. And, and I was talking to them about not missing your kids' lives when they're young. And I mentioned Arthur Tovey, and a guy came up to me afterwards, a multimillionaire, tears streaming down his face. He said, Rob, I think you may have changed my life. I've got Arthur to thank for this, haven't I? I said, you really have. So dream catchers have a very long reach. Amazing. So what was it that then took you out of this incredibly successful legal career and into starting a little charity called Care for the Family? Well, um, a couple of things, really. First of all, Diane and I were going to a church called Glenwood Church in Hlanade in Cardiff, was, which was, at the time, on a housing estate of about nineteen to 20,000 people. It's, it's three times the size of, uh, of that now in terms of catchment area. Uh, and I was involved in a part-time leadership there. I pretty soon took a day off a week from the legal practice to spend time in that church. And it had kind of brethren roots, so it had a kind of lay leadership. Quite a big church now. Well, I say big, three or 400 people, and even then it was pretty big. John Lennox was part of that church, oh, wow. actually. John and I were on the same teaching team. <laughs> and that's enough to keep your brain sharp. <laughs> keep my brain sharp, anyway. And uh, uh, we, he and Sally came to that church for quite a long time. And um, we were, Dan and I, involved in, in helping people and counseling people and and then uh, just after the birth of Lloyd, so Katie, my daughter, was about three and Lloyd was born, uh, Diane became quite ill. And uh, I'll never forget um, the morning it happened. Uh, we were lying in bed. It was an October morning. Lloyd had just been born. Uh, this is how Diane describes it. She said it was a lovely October morning and in so many ways life was perfect. The sun was streaming through the curtains. I had a newborn baby son and a little girl of three. I had a nice home. I was lying next to my husband who loved me. The only problem was I just whispered to Rob, darling, I don't think I can cope anymore. Would you take Katie to nursery today? And somehow I remember Dan saying those words as though it were yesterday. And I said, sure, I will. But if I thought that was going to be over that day, that week, that month, I was wrong. Those words ushered in years of darkness for Diane and I. Dan's immune system crashed. She went through something of a depressive illness for years and... Um, and I was a make-it-happen lawyer. People came to me to fix things. I made phone calls, but I couldn't fix this. And I remember one night kneeling downstairs in the darkness in our home. I was with another leader from our church, and we were praying. Diane was asleep upstairs. The kids were in bed. And, and I remember thinking, God, I spent my life fixing things. I can't fix this. Can, can you help me? And, and, and Diane was too ill to go to church. And one day she said to me, Rob, do you think we could have a little group in our home? Uh, and just share with them what we can, and, and we'll let the broken come. And I said, sure we can. And we, we started a group called For Strugglers. And we said, if you lost your faith, or you've got a bit of emotional bruising, or you think you can't cope anymore, and you have no faith, come. Some people crowded to get into that home. They, they wanted to get into that strugglers group, and all we had to share with them was our weakness. And I began to discover the power of vulnerability. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to love people and be open. And, and, and I saw what that could do to people. I saw you could change people's lives just by letting them know that they weren't on their own. Now, 
I was from a poor home, but by the time I was mid-30s, late-30s, I was doing pretty well financially. And I thought, I'm going to either carry on like this, or I'm going to use this bit of success to buy me the most precious asset of all, choice in what I do with my time. And I decided when I was 40, I was going to leave the legal practice, and um, and I was involved with uh, 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 this wonderful charity that had just begun uh, a department of, 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 of care, care, care for the family, and I became its first director. But it was a pretty sober experience. One minute, I'm a senior partner at a town office legal practice. I buzz and somebody makes me a cup of coffee. Next, I'm licking my own stamp, so <laughs> nobody was turning my phone calls. Uh, but it was a fascinating journey. Mm. And Diane, of course, was very much part of that with me. Yeah. How did you meet Diane? <laughs> I met her one night after church on a street corner. Uh, uh, we smile when we say that. Uh, uh, just after, she went to the little gospel hall that I did. And she said to me, would you like to come home with me one night and do a Bible study? So I said, yeah, sure. It's a pretty so, spiritual first date. So we're date. pretty, pretty, pretty spiritual <laughs> start. I don't think we did a great deal of Bible study that night. <laughs> uh, um, but yes, we were 15 or 16 years old. Wow. So we've we've been going out for a long time. You've been uh, on the journey together for, for a very, very long we time. Have. So tell me a little bit more about Care for the Family. Could, what was it that... Um, I understand it came out of Care, which is another Christian charity that still yeah. exists to, the, to this day. And, and Care for the Family, I guess, was a sort of department of it Care. It was, it was. I was a, I was a director of Care with Lyndon Bowen and Charlie Colchester and those guys. And uh, uh, and Care for the Family became a department of, of, of Care. And um, what happened, it, it grew pretty rapidly. Yeah. It was almost growing to be as big as, as, the, as the, the parent. When, uh, when Lyndon Bowring sat in that very chair, he, uh, he said actually that he always knew care for the family would, would outgrow care. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he was very, he was lovely. He said that, um, he said that you, you are a real advisor to him, which I thought was lovely. No, well, he too, he too to me. And, and you know, that, that decision to split them wasn't, in not one percent acrimonious. Sure, we decided we would we would do it. Yeah, and 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 anyway, care for the family care was mostly a campaigning organisation mm-hmm. and mostly concerned with the church. Mm-hmm. And care for the family. Also, we work tremendously through the church. Our vision is to give world-class resources to the church to touch the community. But we work with the world and his wife. And we're not a campaigning organization. And sometimes it's hard to campaign and pastor at the Mm. same time. Mm. And we put these two saplings in separate ground. And boy, they both did better. Yeah. So I think they've both grown bigger than we would have together. Sure. Um, I must ask as well, for yourself, as a Welshman, is it is it a point of great pride that Care for the Family is, of course, based in Wales? I, honestly, it's it's not. I, I And it's not that <laughs> I'm not, it's it not, that it's I'm not right, proud of friends, being Welsh. It's, I, it's, it's not. It's a, I'm thrilled. You know, I'm thrilled. You know, we've just moved to new premises and... Um, We've incidentally called them Tovey House after the guy that met me in the street from the uh, from our little church and changed my life. And, and I'm thrilled that our headquarters is in Wales. But, but to be proud of it, I think would be the wrong, the wrong phrase. Way. I'm thrilled that I'm <laughs> thrilled it is. But we're a national organisation, and and we tend to put our resources with all our hearts into you know we, we work all over the place yes. in in Northern Ireland and Scotland. Well, I just think it's great because you you do fairly often hear people say about any 
any organisation or government or Christian charity, oh, it's all very London-based, it's all very London-centric, yeah. what about the rest of the UK? Yeah. And it's nice, isn't it? Like yeah. you say, to have an organisation, a Christian organisation working across the whole of the UK that isn't based in London, isn't even based yeah. in England. Yeah, uh, yeah. and you know what? We we take our, our, our events everywhere, mm. just about everywhere. And so we don't just pick the big cities... I'm, I'm, I've been on the road the last fortnight, and if you looked at my itinerary, you'd see that I'd be in some of the big cities like Manchester or London, but at the same time, some pretty out-of-the-way places yeah. as well. And people often say, thank you for wow. coming to yeah. you know, this remote area or yeah. so on, and, um, and I think that's quite important, actually. Yes, I, I think so as well. And, and again, especially in the media, we do, even the magazine I represent, we can sometimes fall into the trap of talking about the, the big churches, the mega churches, the big Christian leaders. And I think sometimes it's right to say, well, you know, what are we doing to resourcing the, the, the smaller churches that are struggling, that don't have a huge leadership team or, you know, don't normally have a big worship leader pass through. So I can imagine that yeah. people are very grateful when tours like yours yeah. sort of roll through town. Yeah, they are. They are, I think. And I and I do think that is a that is a dilemma of, and we all fall into it, of 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 defining success mm. um in in terms often of numbers yeah um uh, and, and sometimes that's why i think festivals like spring harvest in keswick and new wine and those things are good they they sometimes they bring together christians from all kinds of churches big and small as one and i actually think it is is very important that all streams kind of try to cross over as much as possible. One of the big dangers is that students become isolated, mm. just their own things, their own, you know, and that's always a pity. Yeah. I'm always impressed when when there's a, you go into a city and the church leaders genuinely work together mm. um, yeah. know, across the barriers. So looking back now, we've got 30 years of care for the family. Yeah. What are you most proud of in that time? What are the achievements you look back on and think, wow, that was a real success. I I can only think of it in terms of stories, really. Uh, a woman came to one of our very first seminars in York. Or, no, it wasn't York. One of our very first marriage seminars. And uh, it was on a Saturday. I forget just now what it was. And she wrote to me shortly afterwards. And she said, Rob, this day was our last hope. We'd been married for 14 years. My husband had an affair. I couldn't forgive him no matter how sorry he said he was. But as I listened to you and you talked about God's forgiveness, I thought, if possible, I want my kids to have a mum and a dad. And I'm going to try again. And she said, we held hands that day and we cried together and we laughed together a bit. And, and then she put at the bottom, P.S. used to the next 14 years. And that was the encouraging letter to get so shortly after the birth of Kev, mm. the family. About 10 years after that, she sent me a photograph of her and her husband and two teenage kids. And I got our small staff together then. I don't know how many we'd be then, 30 or 40 people. And I said, you may not believe what I'm about to say, but I'd have done it all, all the speaking, all the writing, just to see these two kids with their mum and dad. I know mm. it's not always possible, but I'd done it all. Then about... Five years ago, um, or ten years ago, perhaps she sent me another photograph of 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 their their fortieth, I think, wedding anniversary, and invited me to it. Wow. So there was this incredible sense, and I often think of that woman. Was forgiveness easy for her? No. Did it mean she didn't sometimes feel sick when she thought of what had happened? No, it didn't mean that. But somehow that day was a key that allowed it to begin again. Mm. 
and, and it changed their lives. And Sam, I have had thousands of stories like that. I know it's not always possible. One of the things I'm most proud of are single parent holidays where we, we take single parents away and, and we give them a great time with their kids. And I'm, I'm proud of those. So, you know, I've spoken to a million people now in live events, but the ones that come back are those individual stories. Mm. Of, and sometimes it wasn't something great you did. You just said something simple that changed somebody's life. What do you think... Looking at a kind of big picture, I guess, of the UK at the moment and family life, and obviously your organisation is, is all about strengthening families, whether it's parents and children or whether it's marriages. What's your assessment of family life in the UK now compared to when you started this? Are we in a healthier place as a country or have things got worse? There's a fascinating verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, um, don't say why were the old days better than this. It is not wise to ask such questions. And sometimes I think when we look back, we we look back on a, what we perceive was a golden age of the family. Um, there is no doubt that family life was stronger. And there is no doubt that I think family life is under tremendous strain. And, and, and children tend to be those who suffer uh, uh, from that. There are some positives. When I wrote the book, The 60-Minute Father, 25 years ago, I was urging dads to spend more time with their children. I'm not saying that book changed anything, but I'm telling you now that the dads generally do spend a lot more time with their kids. They're more involved in their kids' lives, and that's a, and that's a good thing. Um, but there is no doubt that family life is under attack, and, uh, and I think often we're seeing a, a, a crisis of, of fatherhood, to be honest, and, and most single-parent mums I know would love to have a, a partner. They they don't want to live like that. And uh, it's just hard work bringing up kids. Mm. And, and so I think the fragmentation of family life is giving us a cost. And certainly it makes organizations like Care for the Family very, very busy. Am I pessimistic? No, I'm not uh, pessimistic. I, I, I believe that that we can reach out to each other. I believe we're learning lessons that can, can help each other. I, I think we've been through times in society over the last hundred of years which were equally challenging and we managed to learn from them, but we desperately need each other. I'm Sam Howes. You're listening to The Profile this afternoon on Premier Christian Radio, also available as a podcast. If you'd like to check out past shows, just head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. All the details on how to get this as a podcast are available there. We'll be hearing lots more from my guest Rob Parsons right after this. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. We give you a rare glimpse inside China's underground church as Paul Hathaway gives us the lowdown on what's been called the greatest revival in history. His special report reveals how the nation's 100 million Christians are thriving and seeing many miracles and salvations despite serious persecution. Plus, find out why Benny Hinn has renounced the prosperity gospel, get equipped to help those suffering with mental ill health, and be inspired by the Christians who are proving you're never too old to go on mission. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. 
Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. That's Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply give us your address and we will send you a free copy in the post. No obligation to subscribe. We just want you to have a look and check out all the great interviews, articles, features, book reviews, columnists and loads more. That's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Time now to rejoin the interview with Rob Parsons. He's the founder of Care for the Family and until recently a columnist in Premier Christianity magazine. I was um, reading about how when you first started Care for the Family and you'd go on TV and you'd be invited on for various debates and you said that you used to go on to debate even whether we need family or if the state can kind of replace a lot of what family is yeah. about. And you, you say how that actually isn't the debate anymore. It's and, fascinating. And it's... things have moved on. So, so tell me a bit more about that and what's, what's shifted and what are the sorts of media requests you get now and how they compare to what you used to be asked to debate on. Well, to be honest, these days, um, uh, the, the questions are a little different. But I, I do remember in those days, we, we would t- I remember people would laugh at marriage. Wow. Why would you bother being married? But, but whatever you make of marriage, mm. all the statistics show that people who were married tend to stay together longer. That means the kids have their parents longer. Uh, there's more stability there. So whatever you, you, you make of it, it, it tends to work. And, and almost all the academic, all of it, as far as I know, uh, will, will confirm that, uh, that fact. That's not to be judgmental about other lifestyles, but sure. just statistically academically that's the case and i tend not to get that those kind of questions now um we we tended to believe years ago i think that the state could could step as you say into the role of the family and i think that's laughable now and Mm. and we tend not to get get that today and and i think since austerity also we have seen how expensive it is for the state to try to do what families and wider society was meant to do. So, for example, I think sometimes care of the family sits in the place of the old extended family. Well, when I was a kid, you know, you could you could get some advice on family life over the garden wall. Mm. Granny was around the corner. Auntie was just down the street. And and if your newborn baby was crying all night, there were people who could help you in that. If your teenager was driving you crazy, somebody would say to you, you know, it's probably, it's probably normal. And societies were meant to do that for right. each other. Yeah. And when we don't, government actually can't. There's no amount of money you can throw at that to, to get it. You can try. Mm. Um, so, so I think we're rediscovering the desperate need not only of the family, but of the wider family. Mm. And actually, I think the local church is just so vital in that. Um, honestly, and I do think that the local church gets so many knocks. Churches are doing an incredible job, I think, in touching communities. Yeah, I, I was thinking that as you as you were talking about the need for community around you and how things have changed. And like you say, we now have, you know, think about my family spread all over the country, all over the world. Yeah. We don't all live together in yeah. the same, you know, yeah. town or village like might have been in the past. But the other thing that made me think on that is is how technology has disrupted some of this. And yeah. you think about the statistics on loneliness and yeah. going through the roof and how we're more connected than ever to other people yeah. and yet we are sometimes still so isolated as well. So that must be another huge challenge to family life. I mean everything from um, you know, looking at your iPhone rather than parenting your child or, you know, these devices getting in the way of a, of a healthy marriage. What's your thoughts on technology? Because this has been a huge disruptor, not only to family life, but to really how a lot of us 
do our everyday life. Yeah, it's it's an area in which care for the family is um, invest in an enormous amount of resource and will do over the next years, the coming years. Uh, Catherine Hill, is ju- our UK director, has just written an incredible book called Left to Their Own Devices, Confident Parenting in an Age of Screens. But what we're discovering is not just a problem for kids, the major problem, but the, the parents' yes. use of technology. Yeah. <laughs> and lots of kids saying, we can't get our parents' attention. Right. And, and Catherine talks about being outside of school the other day and a, and a little girl running out with a painting for her mum. But in the end, she gave up trying to show it to her because she mum couldn't get off this mobile phone. And, and, and that's the sadness, isn't it? But there is so much good, of course, in, 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 in technology. But, but there's credible loneliness. Uh, Diane, in a new book, talks about um, a phone call we had some time ago at home. We were in the middle of watching something, I don't know, probably Strictly or something, I don't know. I was probably asleep. <laughs> and um, the phone went, and I heard Dan say, I'm sorry, you've got a wrong number. And then she kept talking for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and I said, what happened? She said, it was an old lady on the end of the phone. And she said to me, oh, my darling, don't hang up. You're the first person I've spoken to this week. And you kind of sense that woman dialed random numbers, wow. hoping to find somebody who would, who would talk to her. Of course, thinking about family life, um, I used to have a little trick up my sleeve because people always used to say to me, oh, you're a Christian. All you care about is the nuclear family. But I don't know if you know, but our kids have never lived in a nuclear family. Um, before they were born, a kind of guy who was practically living rough came to stay with us one night for Christmas and never left. And Ronnie's still with us. So we've lived in an extended family hmm. practically all our married lives. And yeah. our kids have only ever known that. They've grown and gone now, but he's still yeah. with us. I, I would love to hear a bit more about that. I wanted to ask you a bit about oh, Ronnie. How yeah. did how did that come about? Do you know what? It's, I don't, I'm not recommending this as a strategy, but it literally just, just happened. Um, one night, we'd been married a couple of years. Uh, there's a knock on our door. It's late. It's dark. I open it. There's a man standing there. And I recognize him. His name's Ronnie. Uh, slightly educationally challenged. Spent all his life in care. No real family of his own to speak of. And he used to come to our Sunday school and youth club when we were kids. The, the Sunday school superintendent used to go and collect Ronnie on a Sunday from the care home. Bring him to Sunday school. Take him back afterwards. But now he's left the care home. And um, although he can use a knife and fork, he's got no real social skills. Um, he, he's got a job properly. And he's, he wasn't living on the streets, but living in appalling circumstances. Mm. And in his right hand, he's got a black plastic bag with all his worldly possessions in. And in his left hand, a frozen chicken. And I said, Ronnie, <laughs> it's Ronnie, isn't it? Yes, he said. Uh, I said, Ronnie, how'd you find me? He said, somebody told me where you lived, Rabbi. He had lost contact with him over the years. And. I said, where'd you get your chicken? He said, somebody gave it to me for Christmas. I said, well, do you know how to cook it? He said, no, I don't know how to cook it. I said, come on in, Dan will cook it for you. So Dan cooked his chicken. And she said to him out of the blue, why don't you stay with us tonight, Ronnie? And he stayed with us that night. And then he came and stayed again and again. And and then suddenly it was Christmas Eve. And she said, don't go home now. And he just never left. Mm. I, if you said to me, well, how did that happen? I'm not, <laughs> really sh- I'm not really sure, but he never left. And shortly after he joined us, he got a job as a dustman. Uh, Ronnie was a dustman for 29 years. Uh, and in those early days, I was in the law practice. So I used to drop him off at the dust yard. Then I go into law practice. And when I get home at night, he'd be sat in a chair smiling. And I say, Ronnie, when I get home at night, you're always giggling. What amuses you so much? Robbie said, when you take me to work in the mornings, 
And the other man said to me, who's that brings you to work in the fancy car? And I say, oh, that's my solicitor. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Sam, I, I don't think it was that. I think it was this. Ronnie had never had a mother take him first day of school. Never had a dad say, how'd it go in the big school today, son? And now he's a man and somebody is dropping him off and is saying, how'd it go today, son? And, and we all need somebody at the gate, however old we are. And so it's been fascinating to see how, how that has molded Ronnie's life. And, and he helps collect the, the, the money now in church in the collection. He works with homeless people himself. He came home a couple of years ago. His new shoes were gone. He's, I said, where are they? He said, I gave them to some homeless guy. Goes that every Sunday night, he does the dishwashing for the people that serve beef burgers to the ho- homeless people. And, and he, he volunteers now in care for the family. Wow. Um, so we gave him a big certificate the other day. He packed 10,000 pieces of literature. Wow. Uh, and they gave him a certificate. So, um, so he's in his 70s now. Oh. But uh, it's quite a story, isn't yes, it? Yes, amazing. Yeah. What, does, um, what does church look like for you at the moment? We've talked about your brethren upbringing. Is that still what local church looks like No, it's not really. I mean, I mean uh, uh, Glenwood Church did have brethren roots. But I think it's quite a, I, I don't know how you describe it, um, independent, evangelical, slightly charismatic, perhaps. <laughs> um, uh, I once heard someone describe themselves as charismatic with a seatbelt, which I yeah, thought was a brilliant that's, description. That's, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> but it's a great church, and you know, it has a homeless center. It, um, it helped to start up a debt counseling center. It's involved in an art center. Wow. Um, it's, it's been an incredible, mm. it's been an incredible church touching the community. Paul Francis, our church leader, uh, brilliant guy. I used to mentor him, but he looks after me now. <laughs> and I'm in that local church almost every Sunday. Wow. I, 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 go, I don't like it when Christian leaders don't go to church. Uh, I'm in that, and they let me preach there sometimes. Um, so it's, uh, no. There's something, I, I the there's place. something, I've heard other people talk about how being in that in your local church on a Sunday can be quite grounding. If you do have a ministry and you're touring or you're oh, speaking on big Sam. platforms, there's a sense in which it, it it keeps you humble almost. It's amazing. I mean, we have we have got a little relationship with a church of about thirty uh, nearby, and it wasn't. And normally, you know, I, I get some invitations to go speak in, and they come in to care for the family. And, and they come in and, and you say, can we do it? Can we not do it? And sometimes you're booking two years ahead, so it's a big deal. And and, and I was due to speak on the Sunday at this little church. And they rang me on the Monday and said, Rob, you're due to be with us on the Sunday. So I said, yes. They said, um, we decided to have something a bit different. Uh, would you mind not coming? <laughs> <you mind> come <laughs> they were going to have a cafe style of church or something. And I said, no, no problem. That's what local church does for you. Right. Keeps you, keeps you grounded. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Have you ever had any um, major crisis of faith any huge doubts um not not everyone has but has that been a part of your story over time i have certainly been through what some have called i think perhaps this is too extreme the dark night of the soul um and and as for doubts sure i've had plenty and actually have plenty i mean by by that i mean well, let me explain it a different way. I think the most famous doubter in the Bible is 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 Thomas, mm-hmm. doubting Thomas. Yep. But the best doubt is John the Baptist. He's so sure of Jesus. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But suddenly John is in prison and he begins to doubt. 
And he says to the disciples, go and ask him, are you he that should come or should we look for somebody else? Have I got it wrong? And he brings his doubts to Jesus. And I've told my kids that. Use your mind as far as it can. You're not going to get all the answers you want, but ultimately bring your doubts to God. And I think I've learned to do that. Sure, I've got doubts, but he has answered so many of them. And I, I bring them to him. And I think by now, Sam, I feel a bit like Peter. Where would I go? And I think that he is stuck with me and I am stuck with him. <laughs> if that doesn't sound too ir- no, irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there are fears and doubts, plenty of them. And, and I spend a, a fair bit of my life thinking that I'm a rubbish Christian. I, I, I feel that sometimes. But that relationship is very mm. strong. How would you describe your calling? I, do you know what? I, I, I know people do describe callings as, as very clear. Um, I, try, I try to do that day what I think I'm called to, what I think I'm called to do. One day at a time. If I can. If I haven't got a five-year plan, a 10-year yeah. plan. Um, was I called to care for the family? Yes, I think that God did, did ask me to do that. But, but it could have been something else. Whenever I tell this story, Sam, it's often misunderstood, and I don't really understand it, but let me try it on <laughs> you to see what you think. Some time ago, there was a guy who came to London. He was pretty well homeless, and he was in a, uh, um, a rave, and a Christian group were in there kind of giving out tracts and I don't know what else, and he became a Christian. And he came to Cardiff some years ago selling Big Issue, in a, living in a van with his dog. And one day he's on the street and a, a young woman gets speaking to him and, and, and they get chatting and, and they eventually fall in love and they get married and they're in a local church and by now he's, he's still kind of selling big issue and, and his pastor rang me, I was in care of the family and he said, we got this young guy, do you think you could find him a job? I said, well, what could he do? Could he enter statement to a computer? So uh, he said, yeah, I'm sure he could. And so he came and I gave him a job entering data into a computer. When he'd been with us for six weeks, we discovered this guy's a genius. He's got a very do- good degree from London School of Economics. He was involved in South Africa in some of the negotiations between Mandela and the government. And, he was a, and I needed an academic researcher. So I got him into the office and I said, um, you know what I could do with an academic researcher? Would you become that? Wow, Robbie said... To get a job entering data into a computer was great, but to be your researcher, he said, would you let me pray about it for a week? I was a bit put out, to be honest, that it was such a great <laughs> offer. I said, sure, pray about it for a week. And he went away and he came back and I said, well, uh, what did God say? He said, well, I said to God, should I be a computer operator or Rob's researcher? I said, well, what did God say to you? <laughs> he, said, he said, you know what, Jack? Either's fine with me. You choose. And it just seemed an incredibly liberating thing Mm -hmm. that heaven actually wasn't holding its breath. I get people saying to me, should I do, should I do? (laughs) And of course there's a call, and I understand that. But sometimes if we do with all our heart what is in front of us, even if we make a mistake, it's not impossible Mm -hmm. that God in his graciousness will lead us on. 
I, I personally have to completely agree with that. I remember being out with a friend. She, she's, she's a wonderful Christian friend, but she would pray over the menu before no, no. eating and I ask know. God to decide what... And just think, okay, if that works for you, that's fine. But I, I tend to agree with what you're saying, that there are some things where God gives us the choice and you can yeah, have the salad so. or you can I have the, so. you know, whatever, whatever you want. Yeah, and he is our father. So... <laughs> If sometimes some I know that some mistakes change our lives forever. I understand sure. that. Sure, there are some but issues he is that our are, father, yeah. and therefore we can sometimes. And you know, I, I can remember, I can remember, um, I can only remember two sermons the whole of my life, including all the ones I've ever preached. One was by um, David Pawson. I used to go to his church when I was in law college, and he was working his way through the Ten Commandments and. And uh, David used to start speaking on a Sunday night, uh, preaching at about um, 10 past 7 and finish at about 10 to 8. And this night they were interviewing some nurses who were going to a very dangerous African country. And the interview went on and on. So David didn't get on his feet till 20 to 8. So we all thought we'd be there at midnight. And he got up and he said, ladies and gentlemen, um, tonight we are coming to the commandment, thou shalt not covet in the light of what we'd heard from these young women today and their sacrifice, how dare we covet? Let's pray. So I've never forgotten that. That's uh-huh. my first one. And the second was an old Welsh evangelist called David Shepherd, not the famous cricket, an old Welsh evangelist. When I was 19, taught, isn't that amazing? I can remember that when I was 19, the non-poetic will of God. And what he said was, Sam was this, in fairy stories, the ending is like this, and they lived happily ever after but the will of God is not like that. He said, a young man may be called to Africa and after six months he is ill and has to come home. And people say it wasn't God's will, obviously. How do you know? You can't tell when or not you're in the will of God by just circumstances. And the more scary thing is, you can't tell when things are going well that you are in the will of God. So care if the family's going through a great period at the moment, we're blessed, we're helped, or, or perhaps your church is growing, is, isn't God blessing us? Yes. Am I banging the center of the will of God? Well, maybe and maybe not. It's deeper than that. What's been the best day of your uh, ministry so far, and what's been the worst day? Uh, the worst day is easy. Uh, we went through a period in care for the family some years ago uh, where um, we we were going through a very, very difficult time uh, financially. We were going through a period of redundancy, um, and uh, and it was very, very hard. I think uh, I'd made some bad mistakes. And I can remember getting up early in the morning, five o'clock and crying for six months solidly, practically. Mm-hmm. And those were, th- that was hard and humbling. Um, and uh, uh, good people lost their jobs and yeah. Uh, the best day in care for the family. Oh, do you know what? I love what I do. I've had so, I've had, I've had so many, Good days. I, I, I had a dream that we would have an auditorium where we could live stream our events. Mm. And and moving into our brand new building in January yeah. called Tovey House and seeing it, and I think it's a gift of God to us. Um, I, if somebody asked me uh, to, to give a seminar on how do you, how do you raise finance on, uh, for a building, I don't think I could do it. We've, we've raised the finance pretty well, uh, but it's like a gift of God to us, Sam. It's wow. like the manna from heaven. <laughs> and I get in there every day and I pinch myself. And, <laughs> and that first day there was, was amazing. So I thank God for it, yeah. 
you've written many books and we haven't yet spoken about any of them uh, in particular but do you have one that's your favorite or one that you feel like's had the greatest uh, level of influence or impact on people well the the best selling book is the 16 year father i think that book sold a quarter million copies but um uh if if you said to me I could only write one, I could only ever. I think it would be bringing home the particles. Right. Yeah. That 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 that. Book, and why is I that? Think. Well, I think because everybody has a prodigal, hmm. a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a friend, particularly a child. And shortly after I wrote that book, a woman wrote to me. She said, "My daughter left when she was eighteen years old. She turned her back on us and God. We didn't see her for six years. We didn't know whether she was alive or dead." And as we put the lights out at night, I'd say to my husband, darling, leave the porch light on. And she said every Christmas I'd put a little Christmas tree outside the door just in case she might see it as we used to when she was a little girl. And Rob, when she was 24, she came back to us and to God. And she said, Mum, I was too ashamed to come home. But I wanted to come home. But some nights in the early hours of the morning, two or three o'clock in the morning, I'd drive into our street and I'd sit in my car and every house was dark apart from our house. I knew you left the light on for me. And I'd look at the little Christmas tree and I knew you put it there for me. And I've said to parents all over the world, Sam, don't ever give up hope. Keep on praying. Always leave a light on. And I've written books on family life and I hope they've been a help to people. But, but that book on prodigals, I think, touched my heart i thank god where my kids are now but i trust me i've cried for those kids it touched my heart i know it's touched the the hearts of many all across the world and so i yeah. think it would be that one yeah it's it is one of those subjects isn't it like you say it it um is very emotive for people yeah. and also very widespread so what would be your message i suppose to people listening to this who in particular might have a child or have children who grew up in a christian family but who yeah you know, now and not walking that path. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, you have to deal with the guilt, which is so often misplaced. You know, uh, take parents, for example. Most parents have given parenting their best shot. They might have made mistakes. I have parents say to me, if only we'd had daily devotions with our kids. I have another, if only we hadn't had daily devotions. <laughs> Perhaps we shoved the faith of them too much. <laughs> All those if onlys, you know. And, and you know, you have to remember, however you interpret it, Adam and Eve had the perfect father and the perfect environment. It doesn't get any better than that. And they went away. Uh, God didn't want them to go. There's that lovely verse in Proverbs, bring up a child in the way she'd go and when he's old he won't depart from it. But it's not a guarantee. It's a general principle. Most of the Bible is God the perfect parent saying to his children, how come you went away I didn't want you to go? Number one, lay down the guilt. Mm. And secondly, I think you have to realize that some of our prodigals are not as far from God as we think. Mm. They're a million miles from our particular culture but they're not so far from God. And I think sometimes you have to see God at work in them. I, I, I think of a couple that came up to me some time ago, and they were crying. They said, our daughter's a prodigal. She lives in a town now 500 miles away. Uh, she's 21 years old. I said, tell me about your daughter. Is she a good friend? Oh, she's a wonderful friend. Um, does she care for the poor? Oh, she's wonderful. She, in fact, she helps in a homeless shelter once a fortnight. Oh, yeah. Do you think she ever prays? Oh, I'm sure she sometimes prays. 
Well, she's not doing too badly, is she? <laughs> no, I know, but she doesn't go to church. I, I know, and I'm sorry about that. I go to church every Sunday. I believe in the local church. But sometimes you have to see God at work in in, in other ways. And, and sometimes do what we tell parents to do with your testing children. Catch them doing something right. Darling, I'm proud of the work you're doing with homeless. Darling, you're such a great friend. And But ultimately, sometimes our kids are breaking our heart. They do absolutely walk away from everything everything and and then i think all we've got left is prayer mm. but you know that's to say everything isn't it mm. time and time again we 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 believe that god loves our prodigals even more than we and sometimes you literally have to leave them uh, at the foot of the cross mm. your most recent book is uh, let me tell you a story the best of rob parsons yeah isn't that a bit early in your career for a best of rob <laughs> <laughs> Been early in my career. It was worth doing that. This interview just to have somebody say that to me. You know the annoying thing about that book, Sam. There's 49 stories in it. Why on earth didn't I put 50 in there? Could I not think of 50? Um, the best of yeah, I don't know. These are stories I have loved telling down the years. Do you know the funny thing about stories? Sometimes I'm telling a story and the audience are telling it with me. They know. The next word. I've told these stories so many times, but people still seem still to say, end. I yeah. love it. Tell us that one. Tell us that one. <laughs> I suppose it's like going to a rock concert and listening to your old favorite yeah. songs. Yeah. Do you ever wonder what your life would look like without any form of faith? You know, if you hadn't had that brethren upbringing, if you hadn't have had those Bible studies, do you ever wonder what you'd be doing now? Do you know, it's a fascinating question. And I've... I've given almost no thought to it, which probably is not a good thing, but um, I can honestly say, and I've already told you that I, I often feel a rubbish Christian and I've got I've doubts and fears, but every good thing I've had in life I've, uh, has come from, from my relationship and knowing, knowing God. And I, I, I don't think I could get through it. I, I think if... If I really thought thought about it, that that his is leading, I I honestly I honestly believe that what what my relationship with God gave me was a belief that that I was loved anyway. There was nothing to prove mm. that I had gifts, the ability to to pray. I can remember standing up in front of audiences of lawyers, thousands sometimes of them. And just praying before I went on stage and, and seeking his strength and wisdom. And, and if I felt I'd got it wrong, seeking his comfort or, or asking for wisdom. We lack wisdom today. We've got lots of lots of brilliant minds, but we lack wisdom. And I get on my knees every morning and say, God, help me. Give me wisdom for the day. And so I, I, I dread to think, to be honest, what my life would have been like. But I thank God, honestly, for, mm. for today. The Daily Mail once described you as the man who reinvented fatherhood. Yeah. Is that how you'd like to be remembered? No, I don't think so. <laughs> that my kids were, were falling around laughing at that title. I was <laughs> Linda Lee Potter when I wrote the 60-minute uh, 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 father. No, do you know what I, I think I've, I've, God has used me to do down the years? I think he's used me... Well, let me tell you another story. Now, let me come back to that. There's a, one, one of my heroes is a guy called Lewis Meads, Professor Lewis Meads. And when Lewis, he's dead now, but when he was leaving seminary in America, he said to his old theology professor, I'm about to take up my first pastorate. Uh, give me some advice. And the old pastor said, Lewis, remember you're speaking to ordinary people. 
And Lewis Smeads remembers thinking, is that all you can give me? Do you get to be a theology professor for that? But Lewis said, as I sit in church now and I listen to the preacher talking about the oil running down Aaron's beard and complicated theological matters, I think of a woman touching the lump in her breast, of a couple who are about to have their home repossessed, of, a, of another young woman who's just been betrayed by her best friend. And I try to remember what my old professor said, remember you're speaking to ordinary people. And I think one of the greatest privileges of my life, Sam, is I've tried to remember I'm speaking to ordinary people. And I've tried to bring people hope. And I've tried to make people who felt that there was, they had nothing to give think that they did have something to give and they would add value. And, and, um, and I, that has been the greatest privilege of my life. Mm. And I do that with, as long as there's breath in my body. <laughs> I was going to ask, what does the next few years hold for you? People always ask me, when are you going to retire? When are you going <laughs> to retire? That's not what I said. No, I know. No, I know you don't. I know. But, but you know, the, uh, let me tell you what we do in Care for the Family now. We, we have a, a leadership team there, and, and the leadership team run Care for the Family. So, so that's wonderful. Uh, I don't have that title CEO now. Uh, but if I retired, Sam, I'd speak and write. So yeah. I may as well do that yeah. for care for the family. I just, you know, and frankly, I'm going to keep going as long as I, as long as I possibly can. Not in a controlling way. Uh, we have incredible leadership in care for the family now. And there's been that incredible, I think, succession. Uh, we have people speaking for us like Catherine Hill and, uh, you know, our UK director and writing out and people like that. And so we're, 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 we're thrilled. The next five years, I think more the same, really. Um, I'm working on a book at the moment on a public speaking particularly for the church. And I'm, I, we're going to run a seminar called The Heart of Communication. Brilliant. And it's not that I think I'm the best public speaker in the world, but I've watched some of the best public speakers in the world. And I've learned some lessons myself. I think yeah. I can share those with some people. So I really want to um, uh, give myself to that. And, and there's a couple of other ideas too flying around, which I can't tell you about, which... Um, oh, go which, on. We're no, <laughs> which, uh, which may be interesting. <laughs> Before I go, can I honestly and from my heart thank you for those years of writing for Christianity magazine. To say again that my stop it is is nothing short of thinking, you know what, it's probably time to hang my boots up in that one particular area. But in many ways, I'll, you'd only have to ask me, you know, and I don't have to think about it for 10 seconds and I'll write an article <laughs> anytime you ask me to. I have loved doing it. I respect what you do. I love what you do. And some of the initiatives you guys have got going now, like, well, I won't name them, but many, many initiatives changing people's lives. I think it's incredible. And it's been a great, great privilege for me uh, over those years to write for you. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. We've loved having you. My thanks to Rob Parsons for being my guest on The Profile today. It's been great to have him and it's been great to have you along for the ride as well. I do hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to hear more great interviews just like this one, why not access this show as a podcast? PremierChristianRadio.com forward slash The Profile is the place you need to go to get all the details on how to listen to this show as a podcast. It's out and available every single week. You can download a brand new interview direct to your phone or tablet. PremierChristianRadio.com forward slash the profile thanks once again for joining us this afternoon on premier christian radio it's been great to have your company we'll see you next time